Uh, I am blessed and excited to bring God's word to us and um, just really excited about this passage. There's so much in it. Uh, It seems to me that as the world gets more complicated, it is a little bit complicated, isn't it? Um, Our world. Uh, It seems as things get more complicated, um, we have more and more need for tools that make it less complicated, but the tool that makes it less complicated can also make it more complicated, i.e. your cell phone, (laughs) right? Um, And it seems to me that we increasingly like things to be simple and easily categorized. Uh, We are um, a people that use very complex things um, and need things to be simplified so that we know how to use them. We don't want to consider things that are complex. We want things that are easy to understand. So we want things, institutions, ideas, people placed into binary categories that we simply can identify quickly without thinking too much. So ideas have either become brilliant or stupid. News organizations and politicians are either and only conservative or liberal. That's it. Social media certainly doesn't help us in this regard where everyone is polarized um, onto one of two positions, opinions, facts, alternative facts, and the like. Um, Now, there are real things in our world and in life that are black and white, okay? Um, I'm not trying to be a relativist. But in real life, things are seldom that way, especially at first, right? We're muddling through gray to try to figure out black and white, right? or wrong, and it's not enough to simply throw a label on things. Um, I think this applies to how we think and debate about God, and I think this is really important considering what our culture thinks about God um, as well. In our culture's eyes, oftentimes he's either or. He's either loving and kind, or he's angry and brutal. He's either tolerant and soft, or bigoted and rough. He either wants what's best for me or he gets a kick out of watching me suffer. He's either a uniting God of peace and harmony or he's a dividing God of war. He's either a God of love or a God of wrath. Oftentimes, he's either the God of the New Testament or the God of the Old Testament. And this is a wrong way of viewing God. Today, as we look at Isaiah 63 and 64, we will certainly see that God is more complex than a simple category can to put him in. He is a both and kind of God. He is the kind of God, he is the kind of person who is complex. More than meets the eye at times. So let's not put God in a box. Let's make sure that we see him as a both and kind of God who's bigger than we can entirely conceive of. This God of Isaiah 63 and 64 is both and the vengeful victor and the faithful father. So please turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 63 if you're not there. Or access chapter 63 of Isaiah. However you're going to get there. And let's stand as we honor the reading of God's holy word this morning. I'm going to read Isaiah 63 and 64 as you follow along. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I will recount the steadfast love of Yahweh, the praises of Yahweh, according to all that Yahweh has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. 
in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths. Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of Yahweh gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see, from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Yahweh, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Yahweh, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held position for a a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you in your ways. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. And our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There was no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us. You have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Yahweh, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Yahweh, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Yahweh? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? Let's pray. What do we do with this, Lord? (laughs) Help us this morning to interpret this word that is hard, that is complex. Lord, help us to be um, informed by your spirit this morning that your wisdom would be the wisdom we need, that we lean on, that informs us, that helps us to have our eyes opened to what you would have for us in the scripture. Lord, we know that you are not uh, a schizophrenic God, that you are not split into Uh, two gods, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. So help us to see how that is not the case this morning. And Lord, help us to rejoice in your steadfast love toward us. Help us to look back at what Isaiah said 2,700 years ago and that we might see what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago and that this week we might live in the light of those realities, those ancient realities, that they would become real for us here in 2017. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. There is a lot in there. And in this part of Isaiah, which we've been in since July, well, not this part, but we've been in Isaiah since last July. Um, We're closing in on the end. In two more weeks, uh, Pastor Ron will finish out chapter 66. But here in 63 and 64, we're in the last section of Isaiah. Um, And what we're seeing is a lot of repetition. Um, We are a linear people. 
So we like stories to go in a line. And some of you get really frustrated in movies when they're not linear, right? Trying to figure out where we are in the storyline. Well, um, Isaiah and his Jewish counterparts often tell stories in a little bit different way sometimes. Uh, more like a circle, <laughs> okay? Coming back and hitting um, different themes. Or maybe you could see it like a spiral, um, where you hit the same theme at the same time around, even though there's a different part of the story going on. Back in chapter 61, uh, we saw the Messiah, the promised one to come, the conqueror. Um, he was going to have God's spirit on him. In fact, you can turn a page or two back to chapter 61 and see this. Um, but the promise was of good news to the poor, binding up bro- the brokenhearted, proclaiming liberty to the captives, opening the prison to those who are bound. And then this key statement in chapter 61, verse 2, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of of vengeance of our God. Um, Not only in 61, but the last passage I was able to preach from 58 and 59 uh, reveals some of the same themes that are revisited here. And and here it seems that this anointed conqueror, this Messiah, this one who is the servant from earlier in Isaiah, is the one who is to come. And it's like Isaiah is standing on the wall of a city. He's a watchman and he's looking out And he sees this conqueror now. He sees the conqueror. And again, we're talking prophecy. So what is Isaiah saying to those in 700 BC? What is he saying to the exiles returning to Judah in 150 years? What did Jesus and his contemporaries see that Isaiah meant around the turn of the millennium? And what are we to see here today? These are all the the things that we have to sift through. Also... (laughs) Isaiah dealt extensively with Edom. We see Edom here in verse 1, uh, in, back in chapter 34. So if you want to uh, look at that later, um, chapter 34 focuses on these place names that you see here at the beginning um, in Edom and in Basra. So here we see point number one in your notes, revenge. Revenge. God's righteous wrath will be poured out on his enemies. Revenge. God's righteous wrath will be poured out on his enemies. And we see this language throughout the first six verses of vengeance, wrath, bloodshed, life, blood. Um, here we see um, an avenger. Uh, if you'll pardon me, the first avenger, the real first avenger. Um, Jesus is the one who we're going to see this becomes. Um, he's the divine warrior. Um, God has been described as a warrior throughout Isaiah at different times. So go to the wall. Stand on the wall, be a watchman with Isaiah, and look out to the east. From the east, someone is coming from Edom. Uh, It's clear that what he's wearing is red, and I didn't wear this shirt on purpose, but it makes a lot of sense that you can see from a distance um, the color that someone is wearing, especially if it stands out against the background. Uh, I'm going to ask Dawn to go ahead and put the map up. Um, This might be a little hard to see, uh, which is why I have a laser, because it's fun. Um... This is uh, ancient um, Israel and Judah. You'll see Judah, the southern kingdom, here. This is where Isaiah spent most of his time. Jerusalem is here in the center. And as we go down into the wilderness, where David spent a lot of his time on the run from Saul, we'll see Edom. Uh, Edom is the land of Esau's descendants. Now, Edom, the word means red. And you'll remember Esau was a hairy red man. And he got a different inheritance than his brother Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Okay, and down here in Edom, um, this is, by the way, nowadays, this is on the border between Israel and Jordan. If you were to go to Petra, um, which I've never been to and someday would love to go to, um, if you remember that scene from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade going through that cliff and it's red and the the, uh, temple is cut out of the the rock and the cliffs, this is that kind of country. And here down here is Basra. Basra was the capital of Edom. Um, It was the capital of Edom out in the wilderness and it was built in a place where there was water um, in, in the wilderness. There's not a lot of water. And so they had to build near um, water. And this is what we're talking about here. And so it would be as if Isaiah is in the land of Judah, probably in Jerusalem. And he looks to the east, the southeast. And he sees someone coming from um, Edom and Basra. Edom means red and Basra means vintage. So both these words are related to wine. Uh, they're related to grapes. They're related to the color of the grape and the wine. 
So that's the image that we have in our mind. As we finish verse 1, that the apparel is splendid from a distance. Um, this, this person who's coming is marching in the greatness of his strength. He's not slouching there on the way. This is a purposeful marching towards uh, Jerusalem, towards Israel. And the question is asked, who is it? And the person answers, it is I, which is always very helpful. <laughs> it's, it's me, okay? Speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Do you see why that informs our song selection? Thank you, Joshua, for that. Um, we see that this, this mighty to save one is pictured in military terms um, as marching, as splendid. And then the question in verse 2 is, is asked, why is your apparel red? Why, why are you wearing red? And your garments like his who treads in the winepress. And this takes us to something that we're really not all that familiar with. Um, the only familiar, familiarity I have um, with this is one time when Amy and I were on a date and we were at, um, what's the place, Cost Plus World Market. And uh, I don't know if I was holding the bag or something, but I walked by a wine rack and just caught on three bottles. Boom! Dark red wine all over the floor. <laughs> And I, I just stopped. I couldn't believe I did this. It was loud in the whole store. And of course, it's red wine and it's dark and it's spreading and it is, it's noticeable. Okay. There was no like covering it up with a tablecloth or something. Um, it was all over the place. This is the picture we have of dark red wine, which also may look like something that flows through your body called blood. <laughs> They're so similar and the Bible uses these images all the time. Um, Let's go to that next image that we have up here, Don. Here is a recreation of what this would have looked like um, in the time of Isaiah. This is a wine press. It's a, a depression in the, in the, in the ground um, that's often plastered over and then filled with grapes. You'll see some ropes hanging down from um, the covering. And oftentimes that would be for those who were treading the wine press to get in there and really give it a go. Because you got those ropes to give you some leverage. And smash those grapes down. Go to the next one. And their feet are smashing the grapes, pressing the juice out. Next one. And this is a a slightly different picture, um, but the same thing. If you look up in the top, you can see a little hole here. And the point was that um, in the depression of the wine press, it was slightly um, depressed toward the hole. And all of the juice would make its way towards that drain. Okay? So it's all focused on one part. Next, Next picture. Um, you can even see here, um, this, I mean, it looks like a little guy. I'm going to guess it's a little guy. Uh, you can see even the, the, the splashing of the grape juice, uh, on his calf and he hasn't even smashed these yet. So get with it guy. Come on, smash that. And you can see the, the, the red, the spread of the juice. Is there another one? Yes. Okay. And here is, here is the, the, um, the juice coming out of the wine press. Um, there's a little, a little pipe there through the brick and you would collect of course um the wine uh, after you had tread on it this is the exact picture that we need to have in our minds when we're reading here in isaiah 63 um the treading of the grapes um so if that looked like a fun exercise to you then you can imagine what you would look like after having participated in that if that did not look exciting to you it's because you don't want to look like that and step in all that gooey squishy stuff and have the sticky juice all over you this is the picture of this person and now we know why is this person wearing red well the implication is is that he wasn't wearing red he got red his garments became red. Why? Verse 3. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. He's just a really angry uh, vintner. He's a really angry guy who makes wine. Is he just smashing grapes because he's a pretty angry person? Good, good profession for angry people. Well, what we're supposed to understand is that he's not talking merely about someone who's trampling grapes. And, and as you read the Bible, you, you'll notice this because this image is used in multiple locations. What we're seeing is a depiction of judgment, which is why we have the phrase, the grapes of wrath. Okay? They never take a bat. No, not that one, okay? The grapes of wrath comes from this picture, this, um, this practice in 
uh, the ancient world of the anger being trodden not on grapes but on people. And it makes a lot of sense because when people are slaughtered and trodden, they bleed. And when grapes are trodden, they bleed. So you'll even see the picture here. I mean, the, the, the word here at the end of verse 3, their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. Um, the word in Hebrew is just juice. Okay, but it's, it has a double meaning, right? So it, the ESV, maybe your version says something different, but the ESV um, takes what it's referring to and says the lifeblood. Because the Old Testament teaches that the life is in the blood, which is why a sacrifice has to be made and blood must be shed. Here we see the lifeblood spattered on this conqueror's garments. It has stained all of his apparel. Now watch verse 4. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. This is a personal infliction of wrath. Uh, This is not merely an impersonal execution. This is vengeance from the heart. The heart of this conqueror, this one who's splendid in red, is coming because it was in his heart. Now, verse 4, if you write in your Bible, you might want to write 61 verse 2 because this sounds very similar to just a few chapters before, which we already read, um, that the anointed, uh, spirit-filled, conqueror messiah who was to come talks about the year of the lord's favor okay and then also the day of vengeance and here it's flipped verse four the day of vengeance and my year of redemption which is fairly equivalent to the year of the lord's favor so 61 said this is what was to come and chapter 63 says here it is here's 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 isaiah watching it happen and verse five Um, points out something else that we've seen, and that's the emphasis on the the loneliness of the trampler. Um, He already said that he did it alone. There was nobody with him. In verse 5, he says it again. I looked, but there was no one to help. And I love the English here. It's great. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. Those those words are very similar, and that's that's intentional. Okay? Um, So, my own arm brought me salvation, which is almost identical to chapter 59, verse 16 where God is speaking and says there was no one to help, and so my arm brought me salvation. Not that this person needed to be saved, but that his arm, the active arm, the arm that, that, that does, that is, that works, um, that fights, is the one that has brought salvation. And then says, and my wrath upheld me. So we have all the words here of revenge. Verse 6 is, is perhaps the most explicit. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. There's, a, there's almost a mixing of metaphor. There's the trampling, okay, which is the same word from earlier in the chapter, of the peoples now explicitly being trampled. And this is a disgusting, awful thing to imagine. The people being trampled and their blood being spilled. And then the mix of the metaphor is they're drunk with the wrath of God. Um, and, and throughout the Bible, wrath is said to be stored up in a cup. God's cup of, of wine, of wrath. And then it is poured out sometimes, like, like spilled out. And there's other times where it's said to be drunk. as almost as if it's a force feeding of God's wrath onto his enemies. What in the world do we do with this language? This is intense anger in fact the word anger in hebrew comes from like a like like your nose like snorting okay like the right and it's it's a picture of humans do it animals do it okay when there is exertion or when there's anger it comes from the nostrils okay and then wrath is like it is a picture of heat intense anger when things heat up now what we have to be very very clear about is our picture here is not of this Messiah or God himself as flying off the handle. Ah! Right? Just losing it. God's finally had enough and doggone it, he can't handle himself anymore and he just loses his temper. God doesn't lose his temper. God doesn't have a temper. God is not out of control. God is in control. The picture of God's wrath and his revenge and his vengeance and his anger is one of punishment. 
and it is one of deserved punishment. So, so don't think about God's wrath as a sudden exclamation point. Ah! Like a surprise. Um, think of it like, um, like if, you, if you're going to heat up some water for tea and you put the, the, the heat really low. Okay? When the tea kettle starts to make, I tell you it's done. Or if you have a nicer one, you know, it has those nice noises. Whatever, whatever your noise is that makes, it's not like, oh my goodness, where did that come from? Wow, the tea, the, the water's ready. Well, you, you turned on the heat. <laughs> That's what happens when you turn on the heat. And so the picture is of, of, of God's patience, actually, as he waits and he allows his anger to build. There's nothing out of control about this. And so the picture of the person treading the wine press is not stamping and jumping like I would want to do if I got to do it. It is a carefully controlled, totally deserved punishment of the people, the grapes. Um, One author said this, um, Vengeance is punishment, but punishment with a particularly sharp edge. This is a violent type of vengeance. This is good news. This is very good news. Because what it says is that the Messiah who's sent to save his people cares enough to battle his people's enemies. He is not an innocent bystander. Well, go ahead, people that I love. Really stinks that you're getting slaughtered by your enemies, being oppressed and persecuted. That must really be tough. The picture is a personal involvement of defense and punishment by someone who cares to protect his own people. That same commentator said this, this passage assures us that nothing we suffer goes unnoticed and that every wrong done to us will be repaid in full. This is the good news of this passage. Now, to be clear, there is very bad news in this passage as well. And the bad news in this passage is made even more explicit if you'll turn with me to the book of Revelation. Uh, Pastor Ron this week was telling me that um, that he, he has heard this, I don't know if it was from a seminary class or from... Um, from some reading, but that uh, it seems that the Apostle John, when he was writing the book of Revelation on the island of Patmos in exile, that it's almost like he had a scroll of Isaiah right there because so much language is like lifted out of Isaiah and placed into the book of Revelation. Look at chapter 14 of Revelation. As we look to the end, and as Isaiah also looks to the end, We get some more details from the Apostle John. In Revelation 14, 14, it says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. And just imagine if you've read the Bible and you get to Revelation, when you see this and you hear this language, you go, "Uh uh-oh. Because you know what this means. You know what this looks like. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. The picture is of awful judgment. Now go to a few chapters later in Revelation 19. Here at the end, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and notice what is depicted here in verse 11. Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in what? Uh, What? And blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Here we go. 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is our great hope. Jesus will one day return and he will judge sin and sinners. Notice that phrase. He will tread the winepress of the fury, of the wrath, of God, the Almighty. It's very clear language and scary language to consider. This is the picture borrowed from Isaiah that John used to describe Jesus' second coming. We can then, back in Isaiah 63 and 64, clearly identify this one that Isaiah saw as the coming Lord Jesus. He's closely identified with him, which is interesting because 63, chapter 63, echoes chapter 61 and echoes chapters 58 and 59 in which God clearly is the one who takes up his, his arms, who arms himself and defends his people. And now this Messiah is, and then the Messiah, point out later, is Jesus. And so Jesus is God. This is the beautiful picture that we have here in Isaiah. So, um, so what do we do with this? Revenge is wrong for humans to take. The Bible is clear. Revenge is wrong for persons to take. Revenge is given as a gift to governments to exact punishment on those who deserve it and who have done wrong. But revenge is wrong for us to take, especially on each other, as Romans 12 talks about. But we are, as, as human beings and as people, we are drawn to revenge. Just look at the movies and the books that we read and we consume and that we watch. We love revenge. We love justice. We love to see the posse that's made out in the western town to go seek out the bad guy in the black hat. We want to see, we want to see him brought to justice. And if it means someone's got to hang him high instead of find the sheriff, well, then we'll take it. And when bad things are done to good people, we want to see, we want to see Brad Pitt and Denzel Washington and these guys. Right? We want to see them. Go get that guy. Go meet out justice. We enjoy watching that. We've got to be really careful. I'm drawn to that revenge story. I want to see the bad guys brought to justice. But in the end, the picture is of God bringing perfect justice and perfect wrath. Because how easily can I take things too far? Or out of context? How, how do we know when justice turns into revenge? We're not very good at that. We're really good at defending ourselves. Well, he deserved it. We're really good at that. But we're not really good at doing it well and justly. And so we leave revenge, Romans 12 says, and Proverbs, we leave revenge to God. We let him take care of that. Another commentator said this, Neither for Isaiah nor for any other prophet could there be a day of salvation without judgment. So the picture of judgment day is one of rescue and salvation for God's people and punishment and wrath for God's enemies. He says this, God's mercy and God's wrath stood not in contradiction, but in union. That God's wrath and God's mercy are not contradictory. They stand in union. So what now? <laughs> what now? Well, I just two thoughts for you really quick as we move contemplate the wrath of God. Contemplate the wrath of God. Have you ever thought about it? I mean, I, maybe you don't like to think about it, and perhaps you should. The Bible's not scared to talk about God's wrath. The Bible doesn't shy away from this topic. John three thirty six, just 20 verses after the most famous uh, verse in the Bible says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Good news. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. This is Jesus. Meek and mild with product in his hair and a nice robe, a British accent. No, this is Jesus who one day will come in and provide justice. He will take vengeance on his enemies. This is the good news. That no sin goes unpunished. But that God 
is merciful, and he offers an escape from his own wrath. Wrath and mercy meet at the cross. At the cross of Jesus, we see both wrath and mercy. Isaiah 53 taught us that a faithful father there crushes his own son. There an obedient and loving and sinless son became sin for us so that we might become righteous son and sons and daughters. At the cross, a vengeful victor triumphed over the forces of darkness, check this out, by his own blood. 1 John 3, 8 says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus is a fighter. And he is a victor. This is good news. This means that you and I can draw near to God without being afraid of his wrath. Romans 8, 1 and 2 said this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's no wrath that you and I, if we're Christians, have to look forward to. It was all poured out on Jesus. This is a great theological term called propitiation. Say that word with me. Propitiation. This is the word of someone absorbing wrath meant for somebody else. I I have our kids uh, think of it this way. Um, If God needs to punish sin and the sinner, then let's just pretend that God has some kind of sweet gamma ray Okay, that he's directing at the sinner to destroy the sinner. And the sinner's over there, and I'm God, which is not a good image. But here comes the gamma ray, just to absolutely just destroy this sinner. And in between steps somebody else. The propitiator steps in and takes the wrath. Now, only one person who's ever lived can take that wrath. You and I would not be able to take all that wrath. Jesus did. He could. He did. It's done. It is finished. So sin will be punished. It will be. Either for eternity in hell or on Jesus at the cross. Those are the options. Which, by the way, once again, is very good news. (laughs) It's good news that there are options. In our sin, there is no option. We're dead. Jesus rescues us from that. I have no idea how we're going to finish in 10 minutes, but we're going to try. Point number two. (laughs) Here we go. Strap in. Point number two. Remember. Remember. Some of you are hearing the voice of Mufasa. Remember. Know and rehearse God's steadfast love. Know and rehearse God's steadfast love. In verse 7 of chapter 63, Isaiah then begins to speak himself. After quoting the conqueror, he begins to speak. And the first thing he says is, I will recount. I will remember, I will state what has happened, what I know from the past. And in verses 7 through 14, Isaiah recounts the chesed of Yahweh, the steadfast love, the covenant, loyal love that God has for his people. It is, in English, steadfast love because it's unshakable, it's unmovable. The praises of Yahweh. And he's going to to, to look back and say, look at all that Yahweh did according to his compassion. See the words? Look at this. In just a few verses, we go from trampling and wrath and spattered blood to compassion and steadfast love. So so either this is a contradiction in God's nature, or God is so much bigger and so much greater than you and I can imagine that he can at the same time have wrath and mercy. At the same exact time. Which again points us to the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we sing about the cross. We sing, we wear crosses. What a sick thing to do. It's an execution instrument. And yet at the cross, we see wrath and mercy. Uh, One commentator said 7 through 14 is one of the most eloquent intercessions of the Bible. The beauty of the language talks about... um, the steadfast love of Yahweh and goes back to the Exodus, goes back in Israel's history to when God's people were slaves and they were brought out of Egypt, rescued by God who bears his arm, launches 10 plagues at Egypt and Pharaoh and Egypt's gods and rescues his people. He remembers the Exodus, the salvation. In fact, verse nine is beautiful. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. This is the picture that we see in Exodus 2 when God's people are in slavery and they cry out to God 
And it says, God heard and he listened. He saw what was going on and he reacted. He rescued his people. But verse 10, the bad news is they rebelled. They grieved the Holy Spirit. This is the language that Paul uses in Ephesians 4.30 for grieving God's Holy Spirit. We see that the people continued to rebel and yet God still led them through the wilderness. Verse 13, like a horse in the desert. I don't know if the horse has a name or not, but it didn't stumble as it goes through the desert. The picture is uh, through the desert, there's rocks. Okay, don't think Sahara. Don't think dunes. Okay, think rocky Mojave desert kind of thing, okay? Uh, Your footing's not necessarily uh, really good, but a horse, the great thing about riding a horse Right? Is that, is that a horse, is, especially if it's wearing shoes, okay, it's got its shoes on, okay, it is just really, really reliable through the uneven ground. That's why John Wayne never got off his horse going down a cliff. He just rode the horse down the cliff because the horse did not stumble. The picture is God led them through this dangerous place and they didn't even fall. They didn't fall over because God led them. In fact, he parted the waters and he got them through into the land that he wanted them to be in. Uh, there's, I have three what nows for you really quickly for that section. Um, one is to know the story. Like, you've got to know the story. And you can't rely on, well, I was taught that in, in first grade. I mean, you might have a way better memory than I do. But I, I don't remember much, and I need to be reminded. Have you ever read through the Bible? And you've, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, and you're reading something for like the 73rd time, and you're like, What? I don't remember that at all. Where is that in here? That's, that's amazing, right? So it just goes to show that we're not good enough to be like, well, I read that once. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> read it again. Know the story. Get it in your head and then absorb the story. So know the story and absorb the story. Like let it speak into how you live. Um, Paul says we're to learn from the Old Testament saints that screwed up. We can go back and say, wow, they really messed up. I can learn from that. I can learn not to do that by looking at the examples for me in Scripture. And then the last one is rehearse your story. Like, think about how God saved you. It is good to do that, especially the further away you get from that event. Because the further you get from that event, the easier it is to go, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good person. And forget that the only reason you might be a pretty good person is because God made you a better person by giving you the Holy Spirit. That wasn't your doing. So rehearse your story and then see how it fits in this grand narrative that God is writing. Okay, point number three. Request. Request. Pray boldly from a position of humility. Pray boldly from a position of humility. We'll see in uh, the last five verses of chapter 63 and then all 12 verses of 64 that it is a prayer. It's a prayer to God from Isaiah. Isaiah is speaking for his people, representing his people as he prays. And he prays boldly. He talks to God in a way that we normally don't. Like, what are you doing? Where are you? Show up. Are you going to act? Come on. He prays boldly, but he doesn't pray arrogantly. Okay, he does not pray arrogantly. He prays very humbly. So he comes with expectation of God while putting himself in his own place. So A, speak honestly with your father. Uh, we, we, we speak to God the Father because Jesus taught us to pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But the Old Testament rarely references God as Father. That is, a, that is a New Testament innovation for the most part. Here is a rare peek into seeing God as Father in the Old Testament. He's called Father, not only that, he's called Redeemer in verse 16. And so there's this position of family. Uh, of of adoption. Um, he even references family. Look at verse 16. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Yahweh, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. It's almost like he's saying Abraham and, and Jacob, Israel, they, they won't even recognize us. Like we're so far gone from worshiping the God that they followed. They wouldn't even recognize us. But you, God, you're our only hope. You're our father. We're still related. This picture of, of God means then that we have a daddy to talk to. Okay, and so we can speak to our daddy, our father, with honesty. I wish we had more time to look into that, but let's go to chapter 64 and look at point number B. Point B is not a number. Point letter B. Know your place. 
Know your place and know God's place. Know your place and know God's place. Chapter 64 shows us this. In the boldness of the request, knowing where God is and who he is and what he can do, and then knowing where, who we are and where we are and what we can't do. So, the, so verse 1 is, oh, that you would rend the heavens. The picture is of God above um, the space-time universe, outside of all that we can conceive of, just shredding space and coming down. Coming right through, down into his creation. Come down here, Lord. Like, quake the, the mountains. Just come down and, and rescue us. Make your name known. Praising of God. Do it. Come and rescue us. Verse 4, Paul borrows in 1 Corinthians, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. And here is uh, what we need to do. We need to wait for God, which doesn't necessarily only refer to time. Right? Like, uh, hello? Is this thing working? It, it is a positioning of our hearts to allow God to do his work in his time. Ecclesiastes says he makes all things beautiful in his time. Okay? So we wait. We wait for God. And we ask big things of God. One of the commentators said, God can act. He has acted. So it's not foolish to ask him to act again. He's done it before. He's done it before. He'll do it. Okay, yeah. All right, some of you got the VBS song there. Yeah. Okay, he's done it before. He'll do it again ask. Now there are, there are um, conditions placed on this, right? Waiting for him, verse 5, joyfully working righteousness. We should not expect to live and revel in our sin and then ask God to rescue us from the thing that we love doing. We should ask God to rescue us from the things that we hate that we're doing. God is angry. And then he, he uses in verse 6 this, verse 6 and 7, he just humbles himself, prostrates himself before God. We have all become like one who's unclean. Like the leper, the picture of the leper who has to hold his arm in front of his face and say, unclean, if anybody's nearby, because he's unclean and he's, he's contagious. Must stay away. The next picture, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Um, literally in the Hebrew, it is menstrual rags. This is the picture. Like the translators don't even want to go there, right? The picture is that all our righteous deeds, the best things that we can do, are unclean and disgusting like menstrual rags. I mean, like, he picked a pretty good image there to depict how gross and unclean this made. In Leviticus 15, okay, a woman during her period was unclean for seven days. And anything she touched or anyone she touched was also unclean. And so the picture is of someone who is unclean like a leper, unclean like a polluted garment, okay? And then not only that, fading like a leaf, a leaf that's fallen from the tree is no longer gaining sustenance. It's going to fade and crackle. And then lastly, the picture is of the wind that blows it away. So all these four images show where our place is before God. <laughs> Here's where we stand. Here's what we are before God. Now listen to this. If your best righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, what's your sin like? No wonder God must punish sin. It's worse than disgusting. It's worse than unclean, which is why the images for salvation are cleansing. It's, it's part of the reason why we baptize, because it pictures new life and cleanliness. As he, as he goes on, he then turns to verse 8 and says, but. <laughs> but. And the, the great thing here is I think this but helps us think about the fact that um, the unbeliever's deeds are unclean before God, but not the believer's deeds. Okay, so if you're a Christian, your deeds are not like a polluted garment. Your deeds are done by the power of the Holy Spirit and therefore are pleasing to God. They're made pleasing to God. God made you for it, Ephesians 2.10. Okay, workmanship, craftsmanship, designed before you were even saved to work good works. And so it shows the lostness, the utter lostness of the lost. They are utterly gone. They, are, they cannot find their way. But now, O Yahweh, verse 8, you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Uh, my girls play with Play-Doh. and form it to whatever you want. That's the picture. God is the potter. We're the clay. Okay? Which, I don't know if you noticed, but the Play-Doh hasn't recently been able to go, No! Right? I want to be this shape! 
Okay, stop that. The clay doesn't speak. The potter shapes. And so there's a picture of God's sovereignty, of God's creation, of God's craftsmanship, of God's love as a father. And so the request can be made in verse 9. It's, it's almost like he's saying, God, don't be so angry. Please. We can't take it anymore. Please stop. Look, look, at, look around. He says, look around, look. People have, have overthrown us, our cities. They're trampled down. This is a picture of the future when the temple is destroyed. The place where we worshiped has been defiled. And the, and the, the question ends here. I love this because Ron's going to be able to, to give us the answer next week. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Yahweh? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? The question's unanswered here, but I'm going to jump ahead and answer the question anyway. Sorry. <laughs> um, the question is no. God won't restrain himself at these things. The answer is no. He won't keep silent. See, this is written in 700 BC. 700 years later, God spoke definitively by sending his son, also known in John 1 as the word. God spoke by sending his son. All over the New Testament, we hear of Jesus, the coming king. He's going to fully and finally rescue his people. He's going to stamp out injustice. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to destroy his enemies and our enemies. He's going to right all wrongs. And he's going to, as C.S. Lewis wrote at the end of the last battle, put us into chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And so we say, with our brother John at the end of Revelation, we say, come, Lord Jesus. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we thank you for this truth, that your son Jesus demonstrates mercy and compassion and gentleness. And he also demonstrates passion for truth and justice. Passion for sin being judged, wrongs being righted. Lord, we thank you that we know this. We thank you that your word tells us this. We pray for those this morning who are under the wrath of God, whose future right now looks like grapes of wrath. Lord, we thank you that you've made a way. We thank you that you've made a way for no condemnation through your son Jesus, his substitutionary death on the cross, where he became sin and took all of our sin on himself so that we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you, Lord. Help us to live like that's true this week. In Jesus' name, amen.